Okay, welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art. Today, we're joined by Hannah Boyd, Associate Director at Anstey Horn, a leading building consultancy described as the UK's leading provider of specialist surveying services, which includes expertise in rights to light matters and the subject of this podcast, which is a party wall, etc. Act 1996. Hannah is a member of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors and a committee member of the Pyramus and Thisbe Club. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and a good place to start, as ever, is for you to explain, as I'm sure you have a million times, what the Pyramus and Thisbe Club means. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. First of all, it's great to be here. The Pyramus and Thisbe Club is it's an educational society, really, that aims to uh, advance the knowledge of party rule issues amongst practitioners and promote best practice. And we hold seminars frequently throughout the year for people to, to come and, and learn about whatever hot topics are around at the minute. Pyramus and Thisbe are characters from A Midsummer Night's Dream. They are between a, they live uh, with a wall that separates them and their father's going to dispute and uh, they ended ended quite badly for them very good very good yes uh it ended badly it's... for them but obviously hopefully not for building owners in the real world we always ask to go back a little bit and just find out a little bit about you as to you know your background where you studied um and given that the podcast is in some ways for architects or you know young architects what on earth possessed you to become a surveyor uh, well, I so I'm from Berkshire originally. Um, I went to school in Reading. I grew up in the Windsor Maidenhead area. I'd started doing a an undergraduate degree in geography. Wanted to do something kind of related, so I actually went to work for a, a town planning department in Lambeth. First of all, was my first career move, and then decided that that wasn't quite for me. I have a general interest in the built environment, so I wanted to stay within that. And then I discovered there was such a thing as a building surveyor. And then I ended up doing a master's degree in building surveying. And then I sort of stumbled into becoming a party wall surveyor, really. Um, I started working at Anstey Hall in 2014. Um, it was my first job after getting my master's in building surveying. Started as a party wall surveyor because that's what Anstey Hall specialise in, party walls and rights to light. Uh, started uh, down that track, did solely party walls for a couple of years, and then our company expanded. We became what we had more of a, a general building consultancy team as well. And um, so I did a bit of contract admin work, defect diagnosis, dilapidations, all of those sorts of things, uh, in order to become a chartered surveyor past my APC and become a member of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. And that was a couple of years ago now. And I've now come full circle back to being a full-time party wall surveyor. Uh, but I, I like it in the fact that it's quite a niche area, which is good and bad, but it means that you are an expert in one thing, which is what I quite enjoy, especially on the, the sort of bigger commercial projects. You can sit around a, in a design team meeting and you're the one expert in this field amongst everybody else, all the project yeah. managers and contractors and things. So, so that's quite mean, nice. What you mean is that you're never short of work. <laughs> so, so, so in, in terms of the work, I mean, does this mean that you're predominantly out of the office or you, is it an office-based element, of, but you're mainly roaming the streets and looking at buildings and stuff like that? Uh, yes, there's a lot of site-based work. It's not quite half and half, but there's certainly a lot of, lot of time spent on site and a fair bit in the office as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm moving towards probably being more office-based, but yeah, there's, there's always site inspections to do. And that's yeah. another reason why I wanted to become a surveyor in general, really, to, to not sit in an office all day and get out and about, meet people and see buildings. It's, a, it's an all-weather job as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great <laughs> stuff. So you, you mentioned um, chartered status, and obviously architects are always bang on about chartered status and protected title and all the rest of it. But is it the case 
case, the party wall surveyors themselves don't have to be qualified. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. That is the case. Um, yes, it's it's a bone of contention amongst many party wall surveyors, actually. No, th there's nothing in the party wall act that says you have to be qualified in any way. So far as party wall matters are concerned, so long as you're not one of the parties, you're not a building owner or you're a joining owner, you can act as a surveyor. And we do come across people quite frequently who don't have any kind of construction background whatsoever and it's it's very difficult to work against work with people like that when they're on the other side you do generally need to have a good knowledge of construction to do well in this sort of area because you you need it you you can't really do it without it you can you can design a house without being an architect as well can't you so some horses for courses i suppose depending on what, what you want to pay yes. for and what quality you want at the end of the well, day well exactly that yeah it all comes down to that at the end of the day um but yeah it, it is frustrating we do see people that are don't have any sort of qualifications at all construction related and it, it can be very frustrating dealing with yeah. i mean you don't have to be you don't have to be a chartered surveyor either I, i've worked with many surveyors who are excellent surveyors who are not chartered surveyors but equally there are some chartered surveyors that don't do a lot of party will work, struggle to understand the intricacies of it. Well, we'll come on to that now, I suppose. <laughs> okay. So in terms, of the, in terms of the process, so, I mean, let me just make this straightforward point, which is basically, and it is very basic, that the legislation is there to ensure that building works carried out on one property, or especially on or near a party wall, don't have adverse effects on neighbouring properties. That's a very simplistic statement. Um, and if there is any damage, let's say, then there's a clear course or recourse uh, in, in law uh, course of action. So if we can start by defining the terms, and this is where the hornet's nest starts uh, opening up, what is a party wall? What is a party structure? And, you know, are there any other names? Because, you know, that, that et cetera, in the Party Wall Et cetera Act has uh, some meaning, doesn't it? Uh, it does. Um, so I'll deal with the... the the terms first. So a party wall essentially is a wall that forms part of a building and stands on the land of different owners. Typically, perhaps separating terrace houses or semi-detached houses, this is one wall that separates two owners. Uh, then we have a party structure, which is a can be a party wall or floor partition that separates buildings or different parts of buildings, so typically in flats, for example, Victorian terrace houses that might have been converted into three or four flats. The floor partitions between them will be party structures, and then the wall separating the, the neighbours either side will be party walls. Those are the, probably the two fundamental ones. There's also a party fence wall, uh, which is the same as a party wall, really, but it's, it separates land of different owners, but does not form part of a building. So again, typically, if you take your average Victorian terrace house usually the gardens are often separated by a, a garden wall which will follow the line of the party wall down the center of the house which is then uh, referred to as a party fence wall and there are rights to do various things to that in the same way there are party walls and party structures okay. um, when you see on conveyance drawings you know the kind of the nice dotted line down the middle of a party wall especially mm. in the terraced house that the, the actual thick the full thickness of the wall is owned by both sides isn't it yeah that, that's where the properties are separated but the, the party wall itself is owned jointly by both sides so you both have obligations and rights to do things to it or you can also have a boundary wall which is wholly on the land of one owner. The etc. bit of the Act really refers to adjacent excavation, uh, so excavation work that you're carrying out near to an adjoining building or structure. 
not defined as a party wall. None of that is defined as a party wall. So that's that's the exception. It's the okay. adjacent excavation element. Very good. So in terms of the building works, because again, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, we, we, we talk about work to a party wall, but obviously if you're putting a nail in to put a picture up, then you can normally get away with that, depending on the size of the picture, I presume. Even if you're chasing in to put some uh, cabling in, maybe you can get away with that. It's not so much that you are saying in the example you gave with a dotted line down the middle of the wall, you can't like dig in up to that halfway point, I'm assuming. So can you just, I'll stop talking. You tell me what building works fall under the acts. Well, using the example that you've just given, you there's actually nothing to stop you cutting into the full thickness of a wall because you partially own the whole, you, you have shared ownership of the whole wall. So you could do, in terms of chasing into the wall, that is quite minor, but there was a legal case quite a few years ago now where somebody did do exactly that chased into the wall without, didn't have notice, didn't do a schedule of condition, caused a lot of damage to the adjoining owner's property. And that ended up being a bit of a, a legal mess and a case that we always refer to. So yeah, it's yeah, simple things like that. It seems minor, but it's sometimes better to serve a notice and, and go through the process uh, just to be on the safe side. But typically works under the Act really are anything, any work to a party wall or party fence wall. So cutting into it to install steel beams, for example, for a loft conversion or something like that, or cutting away a chimney breast. That's another classic if we're thinking about the sort of uh, the typical residential projects, the loft conversions and the extensions and the internal alterations. So cutting into or away from, uh, or if you're doing a loft conversion, perhaps you'd be taking the roof off and then you're exposing the party wall to the elements. That's another notifiable element. So you can demolish a party fence wall, build it as a party wall. There's, there's quite a few things that are defined in the act. And then there is line of junction work. So building a new building on a boundary on the line of junction where there isn't a building there before. So if you've got houses, terrace houses or semi-detached houses, the gardens are separated by a fence. There's no building on that line currently. So if you wanted to build a rear extension, let's say, where there is only a fence separating the two owners' properties, you could build, you would serve a notice to build something on the line of junction. That would give you, and that comes with lots of rights of access, etc. Uh, and then there's the excavation work, adjacent excavation within. We'll come on. We'll come on. Yeah, we'll come on to that. We we always come onto that. But in terms yeah. of in terms of like obviously like you know um, chasing into install a, a joist, for example, in in your loft as a purlin, for example, I understand all that. But if you're doing a joist hanger, mm -hmm. so face fixing, but you know into the party wall where i mean I, I know you can't give guarantees and everything here is off the record uh he said with the record button on but um but but you know does that need to be notifiable where do you draw the line is yeah. what you're asking really yeah, isn't it yeah. yeah certainly joist hangers again they've got to be bolted somehow into the wall so we would say yes probably serve a notice for that but if you're doing a project that would involve doing that kind of work there will usually always be other aspects of the project that will also be notifiable. So probably quite rare that you would have a project that only involves cutting in for joist hangers, etc. There's probably something else in the project that would also need to be notified, in which case then it just gets added to the list of, of work that's being done. And then there's the building owner, the adjoining owner, the two key parties involved in this. So uh, again, it'll have to be basics, but give us uh, some idea about who they are. And, and where they may vary from being the obvious. The building owner, in, it, in its simplest form, the building owner is the person that wants to do the work. They are the one who owns the property and is 
desirous of carrying out work under the act. The adjoining owner is in its simplest form the neighbour or neighbours. Anybody that adjoins or is from an excavation point of view is within three or six metres of that property um, where work is being carried out. And with adjoining owners in particular, there's, there's often more than one. Uh, again, if you are dealing with a larger commercial scheme, there are typically in big office buildings, for example, there's often a freeholder, a long leaseholder, and then separate leaseholders and maybe tenants and subtenants under that. And depending on the scope of work involved, you could be having to serve several notices on one building. Uh, I think the most I've had is maybe eight or nine separate adjoining owners in one building. Uh, so it can get it can get quite complicated with them. Um, Lots of different people involved. Yeah. So, but it, just to go back before we move on to the notification uh, complications, but in terms of even the building owner, what would be the case if a tenant, for example, a long-term tenant over one year, which is where the the, the party wall act kicks in, if a tenant starts to do work to the property, uh, which should have been notified but wasn't, who then would be like? Does it then become a liability of the actual building owner, the freeholder, the leaseholder? Um, or is it will the tenant be liable for that work as a, as um, a building owner, the, the 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 person, the party that wishes to carry out the work? Yes, the person, the party that wishes to carry out work, building owner, they will be liable for any damage caused, uh, provided it is work notifiable under the Act. Right. So any damage caused to an adjoining owner can be rectified by the building owner only if it's party wall work. So, so, the, so, so they, my my example it would be the long term tenant. Would be deemed yeah. to be the building owner in that instance. Yes, yeah. If it's a tenant, if it's a tenant carrying out the work. Uh, yeah, they need to have some. Yeah, they would need to demonstrate they are building owner desirous of doing the work. But yes, that it would be the building owner ultimately that is responsible to make good any damage. All right. Okay. Good. Yeah, and often there's a, a crossover between licenses for alterations as well, because that's when tenants or leaseholders carry out work and they need to get consent from the freeholder. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, it's best to um, talk to your neighbour first and get an amicable arrangement. But uh, sometimes that doesn't work because the, the paperwork, which you still have to get signed off, even if you even if you want to do the work and they say crack on, you still have to get something signed, don't you? Uh, and paperwork frightens a lot of people. So yes, and we see it all the time. And Dan, you're absolutely right. Talking to your neighbour is absolutely the best course of action, which we advise all building owners or anybody carrying out work, that that's what they should do on day one. And the process will run a whole lot more smoothly if they communicate what their plans are, what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, how it's going to affect the neighbours and all of that. Have that conversation with the neighbour prior to parting all surveyors getting involved. That is so much better and easier and it, it breaks the ice and gets that that um, communication going before before things get going. What we sometimes find is people the first time people hear anything about their neighbour doing or doing work is when they they receive a party wall notice that looked very official from a, a big firm of surveyors and they they get very shocked and upset that their neighbour didn't come and speak to them about it before. Uh, so yeah, it can be. So it, it's a lot about a lot of our job really is about managing people and their expectations you should also say by the way don't panic when an official letter comes to the door which you have to sign and give back to me uh, but you'd be surprised how many people don't do it even people that are reasonably friendly with their neighbors they just they don't and they crack on but um just i'll just go back to your how you introduced that topic the party war and neighborly matters uh, neighborly matters really extends to things that are out strictly outside the scope of the party wall act itself so usually 
access over somebody else's land where you wouldn't have a direct right under the Party Wall Act. If you wanted to put scaffolding on someone else's land to build something where you didn't have a right, a strict right under the Act to do it. Indeed, I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll mention but, that um, slightly later on, and that, uh, but it's good good to flag it up. So in terms of the you know, there you are, you've had your chat, you sent this kind of frightening letter, um, and suddenly, you know, time passes and they don't reply or or they refuse. So what, what happens then? Could we talk about, you know, being in dispute, which is a very, yes, again, a legalistic I mean, phrase. It is, and some of the language generally is quite aggressive sounding. You talk about dissenting and being in dispute, and it's it sounds very inflammatory, um, but it, it and it, that's that's what scares a lot of people. It puts people off, and they say you're going to have a dispute with your neighbour. Nobody likes that word. So it, it, again, it just gets off the wrong foot. Um, but yeah, so you serve your notice uh, with a hopefully not scary looking letter to say these are the works that are proposed under the Party Wall Act. We have an obligation to serve you with this notice, and here it is. And then the adjoining owner has a number of options to respond to that. So they can either consent to the work. Or dissent and appoint their own surveyor, or have an agreed surveyor. So one surveyor that acts for both parties. Once that notice is served, they have the joining owner has 14 days to reply to that. If they don't reply within that 14 days, they can have another 10 days. Uh, they're in, they're deemed to be in dispute at that point, then they can have another 10 days to reply um, to confirm which option they're going to select. If they still don't reply after those. 14 days plus further 10 days, then the building owner has a right to appoint somebody for them to force the process to move along. Because the, the, the Party Wall Act is, after all, it's an enabling act. It is designed to help people do work that is in close proximity to their neighbours. So it is designed to help building owners. So that's where the element in the act comes from. Building owners are forced to appoint somebody to move move matters forward. There's yeah, that. because because it's important to say that the the adjoining owner, the neighbour, let's say, can't stop you doing the work in no. law. Yes, but they can. They, yes, they can but, yeah. In complicated matters. Yeah, it's another. It's people compare it to the planning process a lot. So it's very different in that regard. So planning send you a letter saying, oh, your neighbour is proposing to build a huge extension. What do you think? And at that point, you can object to it. You can't object to a party or notice, but people, it's sometimes difficult to explain the two um, to people. They get very, very excited. <laughs> Politely explain that you can't object. It will happen, but we are here to act for, a, a jo act for an adjoining owner. We're here to make sure their interests are looked after and protected uh, as much as the building owner. So, what, so if they can't object, obviously people might say, why don't I just crack on them? I've told them they haven't, they haven't responded to me. Uh, they can't stop me doing it. I'll just crack on. Uh, yes. Um, no. So if the if the joining owner doesn't reply after their ten after their fourteen days plus ten days, the building owner can force an appointment. So they can appoint a surveyor for them, and at that point you're in dispute anyway. So they will agree an award and move things forward. Then we get into talking about perils of cracking on without any, without 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 any awards, without any notices, and that's dangerous territory in itself. Well. Tell me, tell um, me about it. Well, um, well, we had a, a legal case come out recently in the last couple of weeks um, where uh, people think they can avoid Party Wall Act because it can be quite expensive. It can cost a few thousand pounds to have two surveyors or, or more, you know, agreeing things and racking up fees. And people don't like it because sometimes it, it can get quite expensive for bigger projects. But the alternative is if you, you, know, you bypass that, then 
joining owners can take out an injunction against the work ultimately and stop the work and it can it can end up in court with a big legal battle and it end up in a huge mess and if it gets that far down the line uh, there was the case just recently a couple of weeks ago the building owner ended up having a bill of about 50 to 100 grand for everybody's legal costs and compensation to the adjoining owner for various things so it's just it's yeah people think that they're making a shortcut and actually they're just causing more problems for themselves okay so so the adjoining owner can't stop the works if you follow the the, the methodology but if you uh, if you step outside that then in some respects they can stop the work yes yeah. yes it's a, it's a long and expensive process but it, it does happen so what so if you uh, have done all the usual stuff and you've got an agreement uh with the neighbor and they say that it's fine um and use your own surveyor <clears throat> for example what if then they're in the process of selling the house and they move on and another owner comes into the adjoining property? Do you then have to start all over again and get it re-signed? Uh, with the adjoining owner, it depends what point you are in the process, but it's generally accepted that an incoming adjoining owner, if they are, if someone is buying the adjoining owner's property and there is a surveyor appointed, that appointment will just transfer to the new owner. Right. So it will all get sorted out with adjoining owner number one. And then if adjoining owner number two comes along, it, they don't really have a say in it. Uh, whatever the adjoining owner number one's decision is should stand. And, and then temporary works, just again as a as a what if, especially if you're working on design and build, for example. But in very very often, even on a traditional procurement, you might not fully know the way that the contractor is going to build certain things. And so, you know, there may be occasions where the architect has no intention of doing work to a party wall, which may um, kick in this legislation, uh, and the contractor then has to do it when he gets on site. So again, do you have to halt the job and go through the process? That's a very, yeah, it's quite an interesting one because that comes up quite a lot. Um, and often when there's contractors, uh, contractors are about to be appointed, some contractors like to know that all the awards, party award awards are in place before they'll even start. But we, it, it depends on the, the scope of work and what the project involves. We often won't, especially specifically when temporary works are involved, we usually won't agree an award until we have a temporary works design. I'm thinking in my head about the example of a basement in a mid-terraced property, for example. That's usually when it becomes a bit of a problem. If you're excavating a big basement underneath the property with at least two, possibly more adjoining owners either side, doing that without a temporary works design is quite a dangerous thing to do. So and that and that's quite fundamental to the award so the, the award has to agree the the time and manner of doing the work and temporary works is quite fundamental to the manner in which they're carried out it's often a sort of chicken and egg type situation what comes first the awards or the or the the contractor's information but we have to put our foot down some no no i understand and since you mentioned basements obviously the uh, the, mm. the three meter six meter rule that you talked about earlier normally very straightforward when it comes to a basement in a terrace property but it doesn't even have to be a basement does it just straightforward foundation no. digging so so we're on an audio podcast so you're going to have yes. to paint a word picture <laughs> of a very complicated diagram so the three meter rule is the slightly easier one uh, so if you're excavating within three meters of somebody else's property or structure within three meters and to a depth lower than their foundations then that is notifiable uh, 
expression work. That's the that's the first one. And, and that's any point of the nearest measured, point of the foundation. Yes, the nearest point measured horizontally from the building owner's property. The six meter rule is a little bit more complicated. Anything that is properties or structures, so even garden walls, boundary walls, things like that. So if it's within six meters and dissects a 45 degree line drawn downwards from the adjoining owner's foundations, then it's again notifiable. So if you imagine your diagram with adjoining owner and building owner side by side, if you draw a 45 degree diagonal line down from the bottom of the adjoining owner's wall, and that's the bottom of the wall where it's at the foundation level, if the building owner's foundations are going to cut off that 45 degree line, then that is notifiable. Is it building face to face or is it the most extreme toe of the foundation that we're talking about? With the six metre rule, if you imagine a corbelled footing, so a pick the point at the bottom of the wall, not at the edge of the corbel. So if you follow the line of the wall down, the side of the wall that faces the building owner, mm. at that point, I'm drawing it with my hands. Yeah, you are, you are, you are. <laughs> well, look, uh, what can I say? I will, uh, I will refer, what's the What's the website of Clarissa and Thisby? Partywalls.org.uk currently, oh. but uh, it may be changing. Partywalls.org.uk, um, under construction but, with a party wall award pending. Okay, well, let me just uh, throw another one into you then, because obviously statutory authorities, when they're kind of laying mains pipes down the middle of the road, are exempt. I mean, presumably because they're going to be running their pipe past 100 houses, maybe in a terrace property. Yeah. But if, if a single homeowner or a building owner in this case is going to be like digging a trench, building a manhole, you know, it's going to take them a day, they're going to build a deep manhole, but then they're going to fill it back in near to a party wall in the three metre rule example. Is that, does that still require a party wall award? I mean, technically, if you take the act in absolute black and white, then yes, we have the same conversation sometimes with, with trial holes and you're digging a trial hole. Um, no. If, you, if you're doing absolutely to the letter of the law, then technically, yes. For, uh, certainly for drains, things like that. Technically, yes. In practice, you can probably, you know, I wouldn't like to... You almost said the phrase, get away with it, then, yeah. <laughs> Strictly speaking, in absolute black and white to the letter of the law, yes, if you're excavating any excavation you're doing below somebody else's foundations and within three metres, yes. Mm. Well, obviously, I mean, we, are, we are teaching people the letter of the law here, so that's... We'll, we'll take that on the chin. That's that's a good. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you're right. It would be impractical for you know Thames Water if they're digging up half the road, you know, digging up all, all the street. That would just be impractical every time they wanted to do something to serve yeah, 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 on yeah, yeah. hundred properties at the same time. So okay, okay, that's that's interesting. All right, so look, I mean, in terms of um, you've already mentioned them, but there, there's you know, there's a party wall surveyor, and then suddenly there's two party wall surveyors, and then maybe there's three party wall surveyors. So just again, give us a quick run through about how that all works. Uh, so if the adjoining owner if the adjoining owner consents, then that's it. End of story, really, yeah. for the adjoining owner. They have no further involvement, no surveyors are appointed. If the adjoining owner wants to go down the agreed surveyor option, that's with one surveyor acting for the building owner and the adjoining owner impartially, um, then yes, that's the one, the single surveyor approach. So one person acts, one person agrees the award impartially between the two owners. That's the one yeah, surveyor approach. Yeah. The two surveyor approach is where the adjoining owner dissents to the notice and they want to appoint their own surveyor. So the building owner already has their surveyor. Yeah. They will have served the notice. Typically, the adjoining owner gets the letter. They dissent, appoint their own surveyor. Yeah. So then you've got two surveyors and they will work together to agree the award between them. And once that second surveyor is appointed, the two surveyors have a duty to agree a third surveyor 
who acts as an adjudicator really between the, the first two. 99 times out of 100, that third surveyor is never needed, never called upon, and he or she does not even know that they've been appointed as the third surveyor. They are oh, really? there really as a, yeah, they are there really as a, as a background figure, and they very rarely get called on. It's only really if the two surveyors, building owner surveyor, adjoining owner surveyor, if they can't agree something between them, they really can't agree something between them. Yeah. Then, then they approach a third surveyor who has been agreed at the outset of the project. So there's no arguments. There's no further arguments to be had about who it is that's right. going to be settling Good. a dispute. Okay. So yeah, I mean, we always it's it's difficult. You've always kind of try and work it out between your opposite number. Um, sure, but because because the building owner is paying for both sides here, isn't he? And exactly. Also, also paying for the third surveyor. I mean, is the third Absolutely. surveyor who may know? I mean, because obviously in my in my early years of doing party wall surveying was uh, we did notify the third surveyor just to make sure we got their approval that they were okay to do it. But mm. the fact that they just sit there and, as you say, don't do anything 99.9% of the time, but were they to be called upon, um, are they just paid for the hourly moment that they're actually adjudicating or do they charge a fee just for being present? It very much depends on what the dispute is. Usually, if two surveyors approach the third surveyor, they have to really narrow down your points that are in dispute. And then usually, if it's one technical point that needs to be resolved, a third surveyor would normally do it on an hourly rate basis and charge only for their time expended. At slightly more complicated ones, they might have more involvement, but usually it's it'll be on an hourly rate basis. And what goes into this award? So the award is the document really that sets out the the rights and the obligations of the parties. It sets out who the building owner is, who the adjoining owner is, and the dates that the notices were served, etc. It describes the work that falls under the Act. So the works of the party structure, party wall, any line of junction work, adjacent excavation, it will describe the particulars of all of those works. And then it will describe the building owner's obligations, what they must do to make sure the work is done properly and safely, describe the methodology that the contractor will use, any access requirements over next door's land. It will describe all of those things and it will append all the drawings, contractors, method statements, etc. Basically describes the work that's going to happen and the way in which it will be carried out. And the, the timing of that is kind of, because these, these things only last for a year, don't they? So the timing of when you submit, because in some ways, if you don't get an approval from your joining owner and you're kind of caught in a little bit of a dispute bind, you might, you might not want to get planning permission for a project that you don't know if it's going to go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you can run the planning process and the party will process in tangent at the same time, right. which speeds things up. But yeah, there, there may be no certainty that you can get planning in the first place. Indeed. Most people, most people come to us. Most architects come to us when they have either just got planning or they're in the process, but they're pretty confident they're going to get planning. That's usually when the architects come to us. But it goes back to the adjoining owners objecting or not objecting. Once the owners have surveyors appointed for them, it's the surveyors that agree the award on behalf of the owners. So the owners have no place to disrupt or, or delay the work. I mean, so long as they have the information they need to agree the award, that's for the surveyors to do. Very good. So um, you, just coming back to one point you raised earlier about like access onto the neighbour's property, it says that the building owner has the right in the presence of a police officer to, to break down any fences. You've got mm -hmm. authorised access, but you have to gain it. So, I mean, if, if, if I say, if I'm the building owner, I say to the contractor, don't worry, I've got permission to knock his fence down to get access, but the contractor will carry some liability there, surely. 
Well, provided the right notice is served, and by that I mean a uh, notice under Section 8 of the Act for access, and there's a requirement to give an, an adjoining owner 14 days notice, provided that has been done, yes, the, it's the building owner, their workmen and agents who have a right to uh, enter yeah. the adjoining owner's property, not the surveyor. Which, I mean, he could be an agent, he or she could be an agent. But yes, the Act says it's the building owner, workmen or agents have a right to enter the adjoining owner's property. Most of the time we like to think these things would be agreed amicably and the details of any access would likely be agreed in an award anyway. Again, if the adjoining owner wants to be disruptive, that's irritating sometimes, but their surveyors sometimes just have to lay down the law and say, you know, you building owner has a right of access. There's not a lot you can do about it. And actually it's an offence for an adjoining owner or occupier to refuse access where they know that there's a, a right to do so. Yeah. So it's in no it's in no interest of anyone to deny anybody access that they have a right to do. It's terrible when you're trying to build up some neighbor, neighborliness that every every single <laughs> sentence we talk about has got some legal recourse behind it. Um, yeah. Contractors shouldn't really worry about having a trespass or liability issues, provided the right notice has been served under the Act and they have a genuine right to go onto somebody else's land. Yeah, in the yeah, in the most serious instances, accompanied by a police officer. Uh, I've never had that. I don't think any of my colleagues who've been doing this for twenty plus years have ever had to do that either. But it's it's there as an option if, if so required. Yeah, I think it'd be front page of the newspaper if policemen were wandering and around. <laughs> Uh, the police frankly have better things to do with their exactly. time exactly so if you're acting on behalf of a, an adjoining owner would you normally ask for a security deposit or, uh, or a bond not, or whatever not normally as a as a as a routine uh, if there are works that are going to cause uh, that could cause damage to the adjoining owner's property that may if the work was left abandoned midway through uh, the, the adjoining owner might need access to some cash pretty quickly to sort it out if the building owner disappears for any reason. Those sorts of situations would we would recommend a security deposit. Again, I come back to the basement example because it's, it's probably the most common project where security for expenses is required. The risk is, you know, digging a basement is a serious structural work uh, that comes with a lot of risk. And if for whatever reason you start digging the basement, you get halfway through underpinning or halfway through temporarily propping it or something, and the building owner disappears, the contractor runs out of money, walks off site, whatever, and leaves the site in a precarious state. The adjoining owner really needs to have access to some cash pretty quickly to resolve that situation. So that's that's fundamentally what it's for. Well, since you mentioned that, obviously COVID has stopped a lot of jobs. And you, you mentioned one of your examples about taking the roof off and the weather impacted on a party wall. Mm. I know it's maybe too early to tell, but are there... Uh, Generally, of, we've... Sorry, I was yeah, going to say, uh, sometimes it's force majeure as part of the explanation, isn't it? Yes, and force majeure stuff is generally left to the contract administrator or whoever's in charge of administering the, the works, the architect maybe. We have found during COVID, I don't know if you found the same thing, uh, lots of projects that were ongoing when COVID came on have just kept going. We found that anything that was on site during COVID has more or less kept going, and which and they've tried to carry on pretty much as normal during lockdown projects. What we've really found is that there's been a delay in the projects that haven't started yet, or that didn't start uh, during the first, really in the first lockdown, 
the things that hadn't got started then were delayed for several months. So anything that was already on site pretty much carried on, but at a slower pace, obviously. There are plenty of awards that were in place for works that were on site and those works more or less continued. And we don't really get involved in the works too much once they once they get going, unless something goes horribly wrong. You know, you usually get a phone call out of the blue from an adjoining owner saying they've drilled through the wall or something or they've started getting all these cracks that are appearing. Um, or I had a lady earlier this week whose garden had collapsed into next door's excavation. Yeah, so projects that, yeah, projects on site had had just kept going really well that's good to know isn't it and then so uh, we're at the end so the final thing is uh, whether you've got one piece of advice from your vast body of experience start early that would be my top tip uh, start the party wall process early people vastly underestimate how long it can take sometimes we usually advise clients to allow three to four months from the day we serve a notice to get all the awards in place. And many people come to us with their planning permission and say, great, we've got planning consent, here we go. Right, can we start next week? Yeah, no. So the party wall notices themselves carry statutory notice periods. Party structure notice carries a two month notice period. So, you know, you can't really start before then anyway. And if surveyors are involved, you need contractors information, awards to agree, schedules of condition to record. There's there's quite a lot that needs to happen. And some architects are, are excellent at getting the ball rolling very quickly and trying to do the process in at the same time as planning. So yeah, be organised and start early would be my top tip. Perfect. Well, that's important. So, well, that's it. That's it. Time's up, I'm afraid. Uh, so thank you very much indeed, Hannah. Great romp through the subject, hopefully clarified a number of issues for our listeners. You can find Anstey Horn and Hannah herself on the website www.ansteyhorne, all one word. .co.uk. So please tune into the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, my name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Till the next time, goodbye. <laughs>